0: Thank mm-hmm. you.
1: Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today I have uh, another special guest with me, and actually I'm a guest in his home right now. So if you're seeing the background looking a little bit different, I am at uh, Dr. Jerry Root's house. And we've been having a great day talking to C.S. Lewis, um, helping me think through all of life's big problems. I've been playing with his dog, Buffin. It's been a fantastic time. But now we're going to get into Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis is probably his most famous book, um, maybe his most influential. It's kind of hard to say most when it comes to C.S. Lewis. But uh, I thought, let's let's introduce this book to you guys from uh, a legend like Jerry, though he would never use that language of himself. And it probably made him uncomfortable that I even said that. But without further ado, let's bring Jerry in. Jerry, thanks so much for coming on my podcast, In
2: Your Own Home. Good to see you, Parker. And I'm also grateful to God that he's allowed us to become good friends over the years.
1: Amen. Yeah. Well, Jerry, uh, so you've been studying C.S. Lewis, uh, how how many years do you think you've been studying?
2: 51.
1: (laughs) Wow. All right. Well, I'm so pumped to talk about Mere Christianity with you because every time I talk to you, I learn something new and profound that I had no idea about so um can you just help us out by by putting some context in like what what is mere christianity what is this book
2: well lewis was asked by the bbc during world war two things were pretty dark for england Mm -hmm. and he was asked by the director of religious broadcasting there a man named james Welsh, and he he had written or he had read C.S. Lewis's A Problem of Pain and Mm -hmm. liked the way Lewis addressed from a theological perspective certain problems. And he thought maybe Lewis could come on board with the BBC and give programming about Christianity at a time when, in some senses, people needed to have their their spirits bolstered. The dark cloud of Nazism had stretched across Europe and England was basically the only place still holding out. His his broadcasts, by the way, were were so highly regarded that Winston Churchill, in his second term as uh, prime minister, extended to Lewis a knighthood. He could have been Sir Clive. Who knows? Wow. But but Lewis refused it hmm. because he didn't want, in any way, his Christian faith and his Christian broadcasts and any kind of work he did for Christianity to in any way be confused with any political party. Well, Lewis okay. himself said that he was close to Churchill as far as his political views. He didn't He didn't want to intermingle the two. He wanted to be able to have a clear voice as he yeah. spoke for Christianity, and so too with mere Christianity. It's a book yeah. that looks at the central ideas of Christian faith that could be held by uh, Catholic, Orthodox uh, Protestants, and so on. And interestingly enough, Lewis had um, a Methodist preacher, an Anglican preacher, a Catholic priest, and an Orthodox priest uh, look over the chapters as he prepared them to make sure he didn't say anything that would be out of line with their views, that he would have stuck right down the center.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, uh, something that I just learned recently from you was about the uh, uh, the etymology of the word uh, broadcast. Can you can you share that I'm with us, Jerry?
2: Breaking up a little bit there.
1: Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, how about now? Can you hear me?
2: Yeah, I'm, you're good.
1: All right. Yeah. Um, can, can you tell us about the etymology of the word broadcast? I thought that was so interesting.
2: Yeah, there's a book that was published called C.S. Lewis at the BBC. The man who wrote it, Justin Phillips, he's since passed away. He went back and researched. The how the uh, talks came to be, what happened in its development, and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And he gives some historic background of the BBC. And the BBC was started by a man named John Reith. Reith was a Christian. And so Reith uh, put in their, in their charter that they always had to have reverse broadcasting on the mm-hmm. BBC. And they still have that as their charter today, but I think with the way BBC's gone, those who do the religious broadcasting usually do it at about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Nobody's listening. But as as Phillips tells the story, he says Reith wanted to come up with a word that they could use to describe their transmissions. What were they doing when they were transcribing or, or transmitting? Transmitting. So that morning in his quiet time, as he was reading in the Bible, he came to Matthew 13, where it says the parable of the sower. The sower went out to sow, and he cast his seeds broadcast. And he says, that's what we're doing. We're broadcasting. Mm-hmm. We're casting seeds out, giving people information. So the term broadcast that you hear on television broadcast, radio broadcast, all that stuff, basically comes from the biblical concept from the parable of the sower and And uh, Phillips makes that clear in the book
1: it's wonderful yeah. uh, it's amazing didn't didn't you say at, at the BBC they still have something when
2: you walk in uh, yeah. there, there's some kind of Christian what, what was that if you're if you're a Christian and you're familiar with John Stott, he used to pastor a church called All Souls at Langham Place, mm-hmm. and the BBC headquarters is just across the street. Hmm. One time when we at All Souls, I went into the building and in the lobby of the BBC, there's a a, a, a mural of a of a, a sower sowing the seed.
1: That's awesome. I, I so, thought that was so that's so interesting because we're on a podcast now, and that word's been you know we've we've taken that from broadcast to podcast, and it's just so cool that that has Christian roots. Yeah, and then that, that this book. Probably one of the most famous Christian books ever written uh, came from a series of broadcasts
2: as well, right? When they when they did, um, the the year 2000 came, they were doing all these things, the best of this in the last hundred years, the best of this in the last thousand years, and so on. And even in the secular charts, mere Christianity was considered number 23 of the best of books printed in the last hundred years, even as secular wow. books when Christianity Today did their things and polled different Christians, well-known Christians who had different ministries and so on. Uh, uh, Mere Christianity was the number one book in the Christianity Today poll. So it had tremendous influence. And even at the time, because there were so many tuned into the BBC, uh, it said that uh, non-regular broadcasters over BBC C.S. Lewis's voice was heard more frequently than any other secular person or any other uh, uh, non-professional broadcaster, yeah. except when, except for Winston Churchill. Wow. Except for Churchill. So it, yeah. it, a lot of people, I, I actually have met people in England who actually tuned in and, and told me they were to listen to it when the broadcast went on each week. So it was destined to have a, a long play. And then, of course, they published published it in in shorter volumes you've got Mm -hmm. you've got um the case for christianity Mm -hmm. which has the first two books of mere christianity in it and then you have um what christians believe is also in this one okay and then you have um christian behavior which is printed separately and it's Mm -hmm. book three of mere christianity and then you had beyond personality which is book four of mere Christianity these very thin little books very accessible easily to carry with you and read on the underground or something in London the book actually came out in its entirety as mere Christianity in um, 1952
1: okay did was that at uh, at Lewis Lewis's behest or did someone else ask him to, to compile those together what, what was the story on, on why that was compiled
2: well, I think Lewis probably had it in his mind from the outset. If he was going to do all this discipline to put together these broadcasts, it had to be very precise that mm-hmm. he was going to publish it. He's like any, any good academic. You know, you're doing all this academic work. Can we get a publication out of it? Um, and, so, and so I think Lewis probably had that in his mind all along. Okay. Okay. And the different ones, the different ones, as they came out, sold out very quickly. Mm -hmm. same thing with screw tape letters you know i think it had gone in second print within about three weeks after it had come out wow wow
1: okay well um can we can we just uh, as we get into the book maybe uh talk about each one of those books as it's a compilation of four books yeah Uh, can can we maybe we'll start with the the first one right and wrong is a clue to the meaning
2: of the universe yeah basically basically what lewis does right off the bat He knows he's appealing to an audience who who may be sympathetic to Christianity, may not be sympathetic. And it's it's interesting. I've studied Lewis. I mean, you know, my friend Mark Neal, we did that book Mm -hmm. on on prizing imagination of C.S. Lewis. In my studies of Lewis's writing, he's come up with 31 different ways he uses the word imagination. Some are good, some are bad. But they say, like, uh, people who live, indigenous peoples who live in the north, They've got 31 or 30 different words for snow. Right. Powder snow, dry snow, dirty snow, wet snow, icy snow, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Lewis lived in the world of the imagination, had these 31 different ways that he wrote about. It. And the first one's called, or not the first one, but one of them is called the shared imagination.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so you need to imagine your audience. If you're going to be a good rhetorical uh, communicator, you want to understand the place of your audience. So he employs the shared imagination. He begins to connect, whether the person's a believer or not a believer, with an understanding of our moral world in which we live. And all of us, all of us have been in arguments before. Mm -hmm. And if we're in an argument with anybody, we must believe there's some transcendent standard that exists independent of our thoughts about it. And we could appeal to it and hopefully convince the other person to see our point of view or else... In dialogue with them, begin to see their point of view and see what's flawed ours. Yeah. in ours. In, in an essay, it's actually a sermon he preached at Oxford University called "De Futilitate," of futility, right when World War, war World War two started, and all the students started thinking, "There's no future for us. We're going to yeah. be called into war and we're going to be killed." And and why should we continue with the university education? He preaches a sermon "De Futilitate," of futility, and he says. In that sermon, all judgments imply a standard. Yeah. If you say it's all futile, what's the standard by which you make that judgment? Mm-hmm. So, too, in the shared imagination appeal, he's trying to say to a person, okay, you have an argument with another person. You're saying, no, that's not right. By what do you make the judgment right or wrong? Yeah. And as Lewis argues about this, he says there seems to be, even by the way we conduct ourselves, an awareness of some objective standard that's out there. We may disagree on some of the details, but surprisingly, in a book he would later write called The Abolition of Man, Lewis has an appendix in The Abolition of Man to show that this objective understanding of right or wrong and this objective understanding of truth is not just Western idea. He has quotes from uh, Eastern and Western books from time immemorial, whether it be the Buddha, whether it be... uh, um, the Quran, or it be the, the Upanishads from uh, uh, India and so on, or whether it be uh, Confucius and mm-hmm. so on. He shows that there's a tremendous understanding of a rather objective standard. We may disagree on how many wives you can have, but you better not take my wife and I better not take yours. Yeah, they disagree about certain things, but we begin to see that there's this fundamental underlying uh, objective value. And so he's arguing about this objective value and and as he begins to argue about it, he he basically sees that that um, we don't live up to our own standards, right? And therefore, falling short. Uh, what does this tell us about the universe? We have ideas and ideals, but we live beneath them. And mm-hmm. some of this is due to our finitude as humans. We don't we're, we're pea brains, basically. Yeah. We're honest about it. Look at the complexity of the world. Harvard has the Widener Library. There's 19 million volumes under that one, one, one roof. Whenever I meet somebody that says they're an atheist, they know absolutely there's no God that exists. I say, well, what'd you think when you read all those books? Because you must have found that they all supported your view, right? And Lewis says negative knowledge is harder to claim than positive knowledge. For me to yeah. say there's no spider in this room, I'd have to check every nook and cranny. To say there is one, I could see one scurrying across the floor. That Now, proving God's existence isn't as easy as that, but it does show the extreme difficulty of the person who's trying to prove some negative point. Yeah. And so, anyway, we're finite. We don't know very much. And we're fallen. We often assert that we know more than we do, or we mm. think we know more than we do, or we inflate our judgments with great pride. Yeah. And and uh, Lewis, Lewis helps us in this regard. And he talks about pride being the great sin. Yeah. Pride keeps us in our inflated judgments of ourself and our often deflated judgments of other people mm-hmm. as we are down on them. It yeah. keeps us from really understanding the truth.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you you brought up uh, De Futilitate. That's probably my favorite essay by Lewis. And I I caught that same expression. He says, uh, he says in Mere Christianity as well as De Futilitate that if life had no meaning, we would never know that. We'd never come to know that because meaninglessness implies presupposes a standard of meaning by which you can judge something to be meaningless. So if everything is meaningless, it can't be because there's no standard by which you're calling that
2: meaningless. That foolishness shows up in a lot of ways because you'll have a person say you can't know truth and they assert it with such certitude. If you can't know truth then you couldn't know that you couldn't know truth. Right. And you, you see this stuff popping up all the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what, what I thought was so interesting about Lewis here is that he's not starting with like a cosmological argument for God's existence or teleological argument, which are interesting. He's starting with this moral, uh, these moral considerations that happen every day when you ask for someone's orange. Hey, I give you a piece of my orange, like I want some of yours too. Well, That's only fair. Or you bump into someone on the L. And you say, hey, excuse me, or pardon me, or who's, who's at fault here? I was in that seat first. And he's starting with things you can't escape, things of everyday existence, us bumping into each other. I thought that was such a wise uh, move for him.
2: Well, he's trying to appeal to something we all know. Mm. Uh, we live inside of ourselves. So he's not trying to look at this merely externally, but he's appealing to something that all of us are familiar with in our daily activity. I think yeah. that's smart. It's also part of, again, the shared imagination. Mm-hmm. He understands that we share these realities yeah you could go a step further too when you're asserting moral issues if I know what's good for me then I know I ought not to do that's that, that uh, something contrary to that to you Yeah, uh, we share the same humanity the only way I can maybe uh, treat you in, in a despicable way and treat you differently than I'd want to be treated is I have to deny your humanity yeah And if I deny your humanity, something in my humanity dies Then You you think of people who show up at a bar and they're looking to pick up somebody, Mm. be a guy trying to pick up a girl or a girl trying to pick up a guy. Maybe they want a one night stand or they want to use that other person. But in using that other person, the other person comes there maybe with some hopes. Maybe they hope they'll meet somebody and maybe Mm. they'll fall in love and marry and have a family and live a life that's a interesting life and so on a life full of joy a life full of trust yeah people don't take advantage of each other but if you show up denying the humanity of the other person who's sitting there with you and 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 you take advantage of them you're asserting it's okay to take advantage of other people or you're asserting it's okay for me to and not you and therefore Mm -hmm. i have denied your humanity and something in me dies at that point it's interesting, Lewis writes a work of fiction about this called The Discarded Image. And the people who have denied objective reality and objective morality and how we are objectively to treat others like we'd want to be treated, in that book, the fiction book, they all diminish. Mm-hmm. They lose. Yeah. Yeah. The, oh, the contrast. I think, too, Parker, the contrast mm-hmm. could also be true. If I can assert your humanity, yeah. if I can build you up, then something in me out of that magnanimity enlarges. Yeah,
1: yeah, and, and that's what was going on in World War II, right? They were diminishing, the, the Nazis were diminishing the humanity of the Jews, calling them something other, and then it makes it easier to try and eradicate them because they're less than human. That's what we do all the time in, in our sinfulness.
2: They violated their treaty to Chamberlain. Hmm. They violated the uh, border of the Poles. Uh, yeah. They treated the Czechs badly, and even even, even Chamberlain, for that matter, he gave Hitler Czechos, Czechoslovakia, and we've got peace in our time, and we got it by me giving away a country I had no right over. And then Hitler takes that, and he takes more, <laughs> and, they, and you just see how the the insatiable desire to 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 pursue uh, self-aggrandizement it, it just continues to to grow. Evil, uh, another book. Evil. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes, "Evil is vesiciporous, hmm. vesiciporous. That means it like new, nuclear fission. It just proliferates and gets bigger and bigger." Hmm. In fact, Lewis even in his one of his arguments for <clears throat> where he's arguing on behalf of hell, he says God doesn't want anybody going to hell. If you said to him, uh, you know, I I wish you could allow everybody in and open the doors of hell and let everybody come in. It, it, Lewis said, "But he already has done that in Christ. But what do you do with people who won't won't accept God's offer of love and grace in Christ?
0: Yeah.
2: And so, because evil is vociferous, God says you can only go this far and no farther. And He puts a boundary on it. And He even yeah. says the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Right. That that the rebels are rebels to the end. Yeah. Anyway, that's in Book One where he's talking about morality. Yeah. Um, Jerry, was that?" So
1: book one is comprised of one book. Was that one broadcast talk or was that a series of broadcasts? No, no, that
2: was a series. It was a okay. series. So so book one has several chapters. Mm-hmm. And each of the chapters in book one is one of the broadcasts. Okay. And they were somewhere like thirteen minutes long, thirteen, fourteen minutes long. Okay. And that that was actually a challenge to Lewis because he had to, you know, if you're giving a lecture at a university. You could stop mid-sentence and pick it up next lecture hour, you know, you can have the continuity there. But this way, it had to be over in that period of time.
0: Yeah. He
2: he had to learn how to nail it and and speak and write with utter precision.
1: On some of the toughest topics uh, in one of the most uh, trying times ever.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Also, they were live broadcasts, too, so it's not like you could record them and then cut and splice and edit.
1: Yeah. Well, so Jerry, did some? Sometimes people have said that uh, mere Christianity is cobbled together. It's a cobble It's yeah. We've talked about it. It's it's four different books and it's a bunch of different lectures. Do you think that Lewis had that in mind when he was giving these lectures or these uh, broadcast talks? And do they do they fit together well? Does he fit them together intentionally?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that he he knew from the outset. Okay. with this so he had he had the concept of uh you know right and wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe and then and then he sees this moral law and he says to understand that moral law then we we we've got to say what's the source of this objective standard ultimately it's a religious question
0: Mm
2: -hmm. so he builds in his second series of broadcast talks the second book then um, basically what do Christians believe about how this issue is to be treated and then the next one he talks about christian behavior and and how how should Christians behave whether we always behave well or not it's another matter right uh, thomas Thomas Aquinas made the judgment all uh, uh, he he said um an abuse doesn't nullify a proper use right if you judge any segment of society based on their worst examples, nobody could stand. You can right. always have bad professors, bad students, bad politicians, bad media people, bad used car people, salesmen, bad mm-hmm. lawyers, whatever. But you can find good in all those classes. And if I pick off the worst of those examples, then I'm showing that I don't really know how to reason with fortitude and reason with precision because I'm only, uh, testing my beliefs against the worst examples of the other side. So anyway, Lewis Lewis looks at this um, this last bit then on uh, beyond personality. What is it that makes us responsible to be uh, good relational people? And, and he will look at the, actually the doctrine of Trinity, something that's often confusing for people, but he looks at that in the last book. But anyway.
1: Yeah. So, so yeah, the
2: they book. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: they fit together. So the first one, you know, it kind of ends with um, how do we get better when we have violated this, this moral law? And then is he providing the answer in the second
2: book? You think what, what Christians believe? I do think that, yeah. and, and I know he builds up in that second book to what we would call the good news. Yeah. And the good news has elements in it. Number one, the God of the universe loves you unconditionally. Mm -hmm. And I don't know a person worth their salt that doesn't long to be loved unconditionally. Yeah. Human love is great as far as it goes. I'm pretty sure I've never been loved perfectly by another human being. And what gives me that assurance is I'm pretty sure I've never loved perfectly another human being. Yeah. We quest for this. And here comes this message: that God of the universe does know us and He does love us. And then, then the second piece of this is that we 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 are um, forgiven. This God who loves us forgives us. And I don't know a person who's lived honest life who's unaware of how messed up they are. Mm-hmm. And if 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 we're if if we deny we're messed up, then then we're probably creating havoc for other people. You know, as a person who who. Yeah. You know, I, I heard a person say, put me this way. Um, a person who is impatient uh, uh, creates impatience in everybody else. You know, they, they, they demand patience from others, but they're, they're, they're bad. We, we're messed up. Mm-hmm. And I don't know a person worth their salt who's not willing to acknowledge that. And so this is good news. And then not only that, if we've created chaos in our life, Here's the good news that the God of the universe is willing to take residence in our life and begin the process of bringing order out of the chaos. So so Lewis says, um, this is fundamentally a religious problem, and virtually all the great world religions struggle with it. And I think Lewis does a great job with this in several of his books. Mm -hmm. And he's deeply moved by the German philosopher of religion named Rudolf Otto Uh, Lewis says, if you're a Christian, you don't have to believe all the other religions are simply wrong. And mere Christianity says, though, but the place where Christianity is unique, you have to believe it's true and the other religions might be wrong. So where are the great world religions on board? Where are they the same? Where do we see similar things?
0: Mm
2: -hmm. And this relates to the natural law. Lewis says, again, borrowing from Rudolf Otto, one, one, one of his top 10 books that he had read himself Otto said that he in observing all these great world religions as a again a professor and philosopher of religion mm-hmm. he said all the great world religions believe in some sort of divine essence uh, they define it differently if they're an animist, a pantheist, a polytheist a, a, a dualist a monotheist or a monotheistic Trinitarian they all believe in some transcendent other he gives yeah. it the name numinous, the numinous, mm-hmm. that which is inspired, inspires awe and wonder. And, and by virtue of its power, its holiness, by virtue of what it is. Second, they all believe in some sort of moral law. This goes back to book one again, a moral law that exists independent of our thoughts about it. It's an objective moral law. And it's a moral law that says we all fail to keep up. we We, we fall short of it. So the third thing all the great world religions believe is that the divine essence is a custodian of the moral law. So if I fail at keeping the moral law, I've offended the divine essence. Yeah. And, and it's been interesting to me that I, I've been in, in forums at colleges and even at high schools, religious forums where they will have all the different religious groups. will have a muslim a hindu a buddhist uh, uh, somebody who's jewish somebody who's jehovah's witness maybe a mormon whatever mm-hmm. and and they'll be debating and discussing what is it you believe and so on and they all believe all three of those all of yeah. them but the question is if i've offended the divine essence how do i fix what's broken yeah and all the other great world religions come up with new rituals so if I couldn't keep the first set of moral laws, how do I know I'm going to be able to maintain the new rituals? Right. Only Christianity, only Christianity says you can't fix it. Only God who loves you, who forgives you, who wants to extend to you grace, only God can fix it for you. And the way he fixes it is through this unique character yeah. named Jesus Christ, who comes on the scene and announces some remarkable things. He, he he says he's God. L- Lewis says, Lewis said, for a Jew to say that he is God, that's noteworthy. Matter right. of fact, I got crucified over it. This is they considered it blasphemy, and so right. on. And he said, a lot of people will say they thought Jesus was a great moral teacher. But, but Lewis says he hasn't left that open to us. He may have had some great moral teaching, but he couldn't be merely a great moral teacher, not when he claims he's God. Yeah, because we've either and Lewis is is basically uh, taking the argument from Augustine out doce out malos homo, either God or bad man. Yeah. And Lewis says a person who says he's God is is either a liar. He knows he's not God, and he's saying he's God. He's trying to manipulate. Mm -hmm. or he's a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, yeah. or else he's who he claimed to be. And he says all the evidence of his moral teaching would show that he wasn't really a liar, nor that he was mad. And the way that people responded to him, you think about it, Jerusalem's a city where he was crucified, and yet that's the city where the faith exploded. Usually if the if the, if the person's killed in one city, they've got to flee someplace else if the movement's ever going to grow. It exploded in Jerusalem. Yeah. People saw. They were aware of his resurrection. And so for him to tell us he's just a mere great moral teacher or somebody to say he's just a great moral teacher, they've, they've missed the evidence and they've missed the weight of the, of the argument. Yeah. So Lewis goes on to say the central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and mm-hmm. given us a fresh start. And that's that's what Christians believe. And that's mere Christianity. It's centered in Christ. And I don't care which division of Christianity you go to, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant of its various sorts and so on. That's where the starting point is for all things that are truly Christian.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Uh, Jerry, I, I love all that. It's so fantastic. It, is this the chapter where he gets in, I believe, I think I see it in the notes here, uh, where he gets into Hamlet and, and the Shakespeare analogy?
2: The, the Hamlet and Shakespeare analogy actually comes from uh, Surprised by Joy, mm. where Lewis is chronicling his own movement from his his personal atheism, he had been yeah. an atheist, to his uh, coming to faith. And he didn't come to faith till he was already a teacher at Oxford University. Okay. But in that book, he said he reasoned his way, basically, through uh, uh, atheism, he said a sound atheist has to be careful about the bu- uh, books they read. Yeah. You know, there are millions of surprises, Bibles laid open, fine nets and stratagems. Um, so, so, And he even says about an agnostic, an agnostic may talk cheerfully about man's search for God, but if they were as I was, then they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. Yeah. So, so Lewis reasons his way through atheism— Through uh, materialism as a supporting worldview for atheism, Mm -hmm. through agnosticism, finally settles on deism, theism, theism. He believes God exists. He goes through the religious issues, and just as I said with Rudolf Otto guiding him, he came to the conclusion, Christianity looks like it's the most reasonable of all of them. Yeah. But he said he didn't think he could really know God personally any more than Hamlet could know Shakespeare he has a late night talk with J.R.R. R. Tolkien and another friend of his named Hugo Dyson. Lewis says, in Surprise by joy, it was Tolkien and Dyson who were the human causes of his conversion. Hmm. And they talk with him about how Lewis had this great love of mythology, Norse, mythol- Norse mythology, Irish mythology, uh, the, the Arthurian uh, legends, and and so on. And And he said that after that talk, it dawned on him that Hamlet could never break out of the play to get to know the author, Shakespeare. But in fact, Shakespeare, the author, could have written himself into the play as a character and made the introduction between Shakespeare and Hamlet possible. And he says, I think that's what happened in the Incarnation. But this was this was an outgrowth of this long conversation that Tolkien and Dyson had with Lewis and mostly Tolkien, who said, you love these myths of the gods coming into our world. You love the myths of the gods who come in and maybe even die to redeem. How come you don't love the myth when you encounter it in the one place where this story is actually true? It happened yeah. in history where God became man. And so yeah. that that's where that's from.
1: Yeah, that, that was, that's been so influential for me i think later later in mere christianity he talks about time and uh and he's talking about if you're authoring a book um uh if i'm writing a book and i write about mary uh and then i put the pen down and i go get some coffee mary's not hung in limbo waiting for me uh there's two different levels of time going on and, and he, he makes the same kind of analogy between uh the, hamlet and shakespeare the, the, the in, in different plays the seeing eye yeah
2: well, the, the the thing is, all those ideas, uh, they do appear in various places in Lewis, even in Narnia. Narnian time and our time are different. Yeah, right. And you've got um, yeah. you've got that in Beyond Time and Eternity, or something like that. It's a chapter uh, yeah. in Mere Christianity. Yep. And all of that, and even in the Discarded Image, is literary critical work, and so on. It's all from Boethius. Lewis was deeply influenced mm. by the philosopher Boethius and his book, The Consolation of Philosophy. And a lot of times you'll have Mm -hmm. Christians, and they'll struggle with the concept, and non-Christians too, they'll struggle with the concept of foreknowledge and free will. If God foreknows what I'm going to do before I do it, then am I really free when I get to that place? Isn't that deterministic? And they say, how can there be a loving God if that's the way it is? Well, Lewis makes it clear that we have the conundrum because we've anthropomorphized God. Right. We put human limitations on him and then judge him for not being God. That's really unfair. You yeah. know? So so Boethius is the one who says, No, God is omnitemporal. All times are in his constant presence. He doesn't have a past, present, and future like we do. He's made us as beings who are subject to time and passing through time. But God doesn't pass through time. He doesn't look ahead on a time continuum and see what we're going to do. So that when we get there out of his sovereignty, we have no choice in the matter. Mm-hmm. No, God is always omnitemporal. He always transcends all times so that our past is still his ever-present now. Mm-hmm. Our future is already in his present now. If we saw a photon of light, if we looked up in the night sky, in the winter sky, the dominant, most bright star in the sky, in the night sky in the winter is Cirrus, the dog star of of Orion. If you can spot Orion and the three stars that make up his belt. If you look at him and then look a little bit to the left and down, you'll see this bright star, Cirrus. It's 10 light years away. You're actually looking into the past 10 years ago. Right. Yeah. photon of light left traveling 186,000 miles per second on but what if you could straddle you're so big you could straddle cirrus and earth at the same time what time would you be in yeah and not only that what if you were there when the light beam of light left but at the very moment that it left you were already at the place where it arrived and when you were there where it arrived you were still at the place where it left in other words you were omnitemporal. the mm-hmm. lewis says that god is on the temporal not perpetual and consequently he always sees, you just shook your head, yes. I mm-hmm. saw it, and I saw it in my, in my time, and I didn't in any way hinder you from being able to shake your head. Yeah, Lewis gets, he, he writes about that in that chapter in Mere Christianity, but he gets the idea from Boethius, and I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Boethius is brilliant. Everybody should read Boethius. Lewis says, Lewis says in the discarded image that up to 200 years ago, if a person wasn't familiar with Boethius, they were considered uneducated. Yeah talk to people who've never heard of it before right. and I think a lot of the great literature of, of classical and scholastic times was filtered out by 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 the enlightenment and i, I remember years ago you have to take it by faith but uh, I, I had a few meetings with um with mortimer adler the great uh, philosopher at university of chicago the editor-in-chief of the encyclopedia britannica who put the great books of the western world today together mm-hmm. and he said he thought that the Enlightenment philosophers were ignorant men. Hmm. I said, wait a minute, these were brilliant men. I said, no, 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 I'm not saying they weren't unintelligent. I said they were ignorant. Hmm. I don't think they had read anything more than two generations before their own time.
1: Because
2: yeah. they would have read some of the stuff in the, and say, Locke wouldn't have made his mistakes if he had read the Theatetus. Huh. Said they wouldn't have made their mistakes if they had read uh, Aristotle and, and uh uh augustine and and if they'd read plato and stuff like that and i i think that there's some merit to what what uh he was saying wow yeah that's that's interesting
1: yeah yeah man that's good well um so you've told me that about boethius before a few years back when we first started meeting i think i had just read him beforehand because i had read some lewis and so i felt awesome because i already had read that but then uh at Ted's I took a classics class as well and and that was on the the reading list so I felt good about Ted's too that we were we we're reading Boethius here we go we're we're smarter than the enlightenment uh, philosophers there
2: there's actually uh uh Sarah Borden she's one of the philosophers here at Wheaton College she actually teaches a course on Boethius Oh sweet I'm real proud of her
1: Yeah that's awesome Okay so so we got to um what Christians believe um, we we dabbled in that a little bit. And then uh, Lewis moves on to Christian behavior. Yeah. So this is acting
2: out what, what Christians believe. Well, the thing is, that if if there's an objective law, and if also the way that God sets us right with him is mm-hmm. also objective, mm-hmm. it's true for me, it's true for you, it's true for all of us, it's something that comes down transcendentally, yeah. then, then Christian behavior would be basically adjusting the scoliosis of our souls to the plumb line of God's truth, mm-hmm. and, and Lewis goes on to say, "Moral rules are directions for running the human machine." There's a direct quote from the book. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown, or to strain, or, or a strain, or a friction in the running of that machine. So you you talk with young people, and they say, "You know, I'm wired horny. How come God says I can't have sex till I get married?" Well, that's because God wants to build in place something more substantive than just a union that is held together by virtue of the lowest common denominator of intimacy even animals yeah. and mate and so <laughs> right far. right but you don't want to marry a body you know well but a person you don't know at all and there's mm-hmm. a reason why God put these moral rules in there he wants to give you the most robust marriage you can that's not just firing on the sex cylinder but it's firing on the spiritual cylinder the psychological cylinder the uh intellectual interest cylinder, the historical shared history cylinder, good communication cylinder. It's interesting we use the word intercourse for sexual union and also for deep conversation. So a person ends up, again, (laughs) after marriage, if they've only had sexual union or the sexual union has loomed so strong that these other things atrophy or stay underdeveloped. We marry a body we know well, but not a person we know at all. So moral failure, Lewis writes, is going to cause trouble probably to others, certainly to yourself. And then he goes on to say, if we are to think about morality, we must think about all the departments, relations between man and man, relations relative to things inside of man, and relations between man and the power that made him.
0: Hmm.
2: In other words, Christian behavior should be a behavior characterized by reconciliation, by integration, by wholeness, and so on. It's not compartmentalized, and so he he writes about these then each of these areas: human relations, character development, relationships with God, character development, be what's going on inside of me. Yeah. So I think this is important, and then he goes on to discuss the virtues, of course.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Jerry. So he um, he talks about different types of virtues, right? There's like theological virtues. I, I can't remember the exact language he's using
2: well lewis is steeped in in classical and scholastic literature and so you have the cardinal virtues and these would it, it, we would say sometimes mm-hmm. we say virtues use it as a plural but for the classicist the the virtues it's it's virtue is an integrated yeah. whole and these other yeah. things facets of the one thing matter of fact if you take away one feature of virtue virtue collapses yeah so virtue is an integrated whole made up of Wisdom, courage, um, justice, or temperance, and justice. So uh, courage, all of these are habits, too. If, if it's real virtue, it can't just be one virtuous act. Yeah. If I think I want to be temperate, to refuse a second piece of pie doesn't make me a virtuous person. It just means that moment I'd restrain myself from eating more than I should have eaten. Yeah. So, so courage is the habitual ability to suffer pain and hardship. It's endurance, fortitude and staying power. Courage is the ability to say yes to right action, even in the teeth of pain. It may cost me, but I'm going to do this because this is what a cur- courageous and, and a virtuous person would do. I will make sacrifices for your welfare. I will tell the truth, even if it hurts me. Yeah. I will not take advantage of another person, even though it may bring me pleasure to do so. So, so that's courage. Temperance, is a habitual ability to resist the enticement of immediate pleasure in order to gain the greater though more remote good. Hmm. So, if courage is the ability to say yes to right action in the teeth of pain, temperance is the ability to say no to wrong action even in the jaws of pleasure. Hmm. And so, so you you'll, you'll have it where a child, immature, will sell their souls to sneak a cookie before dinner. Or they'll sell their souls to to uh, get sweets or or whatever, or or indulge themselves, eat beyond what they should eat when it comes Turkey, to Turkey. Yeah. Turkish delight. Turkish yeah. delight. now Well, I wonder mm-hmm. about that, that whole <laughs> yeah. Turkish delight stuff with Edmund. My word. I I mean he must have had very low standards. If I was gonna do de- <laughs> my brother, sister, I'd hold out for chocolate. I don't know if you ever had Turkish Delight. It's right. not that appealing to me. But Lewis himself said, yeah, when he said, I always like chocolate better. But when I would buy a candy for myself, I always bought toffee because it lasted longer. So hmm. so that interesting. But anyway, um, yeah. yeah, intemperance. And then you've got justice, which is the one moral characteristic, ver- characteristic of virtue that says my moral development is linked to yours. So justice is ah. the habit of being law abiding. And concern for the general welfare of society not only what's good for me but what's good for me and you mm-hmm. it's fair it renders to others their due and it secures and protects natural rights yeah and so it justice even even it's out of justice that lewis writes his sermon the weight of glory he says every one of us is always moving towards being an ultimate everlasting horror or an ultimate everlasting glory yeah. And each of us in our dealings with one another are helping one another towards one of those ends or the other your development moral development I have a responsibility for it to the degree that we're in association and relationship yeah and that's the weight of glory and it's mm-hmm. an act of justice justice is rendering to another person or due and then and then you've got and I mean even another person or due we, we're, we're our culture is, riddled with informal fallacies I give my students a list of informal fallacies I say for the next month watch these if you ever see it in my life confront me on it yeah you can go to your lectures and you'll hear informal fallacies you'll hear mm-hmm. sermons with informal fallacies you'll hear uh, broadcasts news broadcasts right or left you, the the cultures rife with them yeah informal fallacies I mean it's a perfect perfect example is is is, is the one where there's equivocation we don't mm-hmm a term a woman says i have a right over my own body therefore i have a right to abort well no you didn't abort your body you aborted somebody else's body right and you've prevented that body from being born you have been you you have not rendered them their due you have done an act of injustice before you had sex you had a right to your body mm-hmm. if somebody steals your body they rape you it's another matter there's some difficulties there yeah. And we could talk about those. Those make for interesting discussions. But before you had sex, you had a right to your body. But once you conceived, now we're talking two bodies. And because you didn't define the problem right, you engage in all kinds of equivocation when you talk yeah. about it. Right. And you end up begging the question. You end up in a in a, what they call a red herring. You take the argument this way rather than staying on course with what's really going on here, the right. reality, and so mm-hmm. on. So, so that's justice. And then the last one is wisdom. And, and wisdom is the habit of of, of of being careful about decisions we make. It mm-hmm. seeks counsel and advice. It recognizes uh, wisdom recognizes that that we're very limited in our understanding, so we want to stay in community with others so we can benefit from perspective and so on. I think that becomes very important. Yeah. And then the theological virtues would be faith. We, we trust what God has done for us. We believe in him. And it's the faith that encourages us to to have hope, which is another one of the theological virtues, and then also mm-hmm. charity. And charity, like justice, is that feature of theological virtue that says my own development is connected with others. I need to be charitable, giving, and kind towards other people. That's yeah. extremely important.
1: Yeah. So Jerry, I, I initially just think, uh, you know, faith, hope, and love. But the, the the best of these is is love. Does does love fit in with charity? Does love is love something that binds all these together? Where does love does does love fit into love
2: the virtues? Love is charity. Okay. Uh, the caritas, the, the Latin word, it, it, that's what it is. An agape, which is translated charity in the King James version of First Corinthians thirteen, uh, agape is 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 love. Okay. These are it's So uh, it's but 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 sometimes we think of charity as act of giving. To right.
1: People.
2: That's what it means today. Yeah, we've but, we've changed. But it. that's okay. That's okay. The act of giving grows out of a fundamental value, which yes. is yes, which is yes.
1: Awesome. That's good. We I, I like recapturing that that fuller uh, meaning of charity, which does encompass our you know diminished deflated view. The, uh, another thing we, you and I were talking about earlier. Another word uh, was condescension. Uh-huh. and And how condescension today for us don't condescend to me, that's so rude, you know, but can you explain can you I, I just thought this would be a, a fun one to talk about, but what what does condescension mean historically?
2: Well, in a dynamic world where where languages are changing, culture yeah. changing and so on. condescension initially meant that the, the one with with power, the one with uh, benefits and and so on they they will grant to the one without they will be magnanimous largeness of soul that they could extend to another person mm-hmm. the things that that other person needs and that was how condescending what we talk about god causing speaking of the incarnation of christ yeah. and so on it's a great word yeah when it came to mean um oh you're doing this looking down the nose at me when you help me here right. you you condescending so and so on. And it's become a term almost of derision. Right, and it's magic. We we lost a good word with that one. Lewis, yeah. Lewis uses the the word um, uh, verbicide. Verbicide. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Suicide when you kill yourself. Regicide when you kill the king. Verbicide is when we kill a word because we have neglected its original use and it develops or or devolves yeah. to a, a negative use.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I thought that that connection was interesting between uh, condescension and charity. That it it is an act of charity. It's a good thing, or it was before before the verbicide happened.
2: It still can be if you if you use the word and you explain. I'm using this in the old sense. Yeah, meant this, and then go ahead and use it. Okay. okay. Yeah, that would again be shared imagination, right? You understand that your audience has probably been influenced by this uh, newer use of the word. Mm-hmm. This, um, unfortunately, um, um, this castrated sense of the word, it's lost its vim and its vigor. It doesn't yeah. have the power it once had.
1: Yeah. Man, I, I love that, Jerry. That, that's so helpful. Uh, that's really helpful. I, I've been been—I've been thinking a lot through um, temperance lately, and yeah. I i didn't even fully understand it until you just said that. And I thought that was so interesting, uh, courage and temperance and the external yeah. internal kind of
2: maturity i used to teach philosophy at a secular college and when we would talk about virtue which you, you if you're going to do any kind of philosophy you got to get to it mm-hmm. and and um we'd talk about it and I'd, I'd try and explain temperance and i'd talk about my children doing anything they could to get sweets you know and stealing it and there, these there's some really funny stories from their childhood yeah these kids would be laughing their heads off oh yeah i get it yeah it's it's a really mark of maturity isn't it you know mm-hmm. your soul for sweets i go how many of you are sleeping with your boyfriends and girlfriends? Hmm. Suddenly it got real quiet. And I said, it's still an issue of temperance, but we've raised the ante now, which you're willing to sell your soul for. Yeah. And then and then you get hmm. when they're older. Um, I, I can remember people in my parents day, they'd say, oh, you got to go to Burt's Beanery on Thursday nights. They give you the blue plate special. You get soup and salad with dessert thrown in and they would talk about food all the time and 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 now it's it was uh sweets when they're young sex when they're in in their middle years and then back to food again and and we end up we're we're just we have continued in our intemperance but we've just found different expressions of it rather than learning the art of being temperate yeah and if i am temperate then I'm more likely maybe to be courageous because I won't be worried about whether or not I get hurt in this situation. I will do what is fundamentally the right thing to benefit others. I will be able to be a just person.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Because I will be thinking through these issues in, in 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 a temperate and courageous way. Yeah, And I will be employing wisdom in the process. That's why virtue is seen as an integrated whole. You lose yeah. one feature of it and the others begin to crumble.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's... That's so helpful. That, that's so, uh, it's so profound. But like you said, you know, this was, this is something that people were teaching each other and trying to inculcate, you know, and, and I I do feel like, I don't want to just, uh, I don't want to unnecessarily just dump on the present, but I, I feel like we've lost a bit of that. I think we've, we've lost it. A lot of the virtue talk is also filled with um, cynicism. And, you know, oh, you think you're so virtuous or virtue signaling. And that's kind of the language has, has changed as well.
2: Well, the the other thing too, is if, if the words are virtuous and the person then tries to belittle you because you were virtuous, what does that say for them? Right. You want to be in, unvirtuous. But the, but the other thing too, is I don't want you to think that because I can articulate these things that somehow I I, I have come down from Mount Olympus and I can speak of them <laughs> on high. Right. I, my life has been a life where I've had to learn these things the hard way. Yeah. But, but, but at least at least if I've learned them along the way, then maybe I can share them with other people and save them some trouble. I remember when I was a new Christian, I prayed, Lord discipline me. Oh Lord, please I pray, discipline me. Hmm. Three months were the worst months of my life after <laughs> I prayed that. I never pray, Lord, discipline me anymore. Mm-hmm. I said, Lord, give me a soft heart. Yeah. Keep me from a stiff neck. And teach me vicariously through the errors of others that I won't have to repeat those errors. Mm-hmm. There are ways we can learn by by being sensitive to the great moral literature of all time, or we can pick it up because we've had to learn because we're tired of being beat up and bruised. Yeah. But nevertheless, either way you can learn. There's just one that's less painful. Yeah. Wow. Man, that's so good, Jerry. So so moving
1: in. I- the, how does he? How does Lewis then connect this talk of the, the practical, the everyday, the you know uh, habituation, living
2: the Christian life? How does he then connect that to the Trinity? Well, he the, the chap this that that book is called Beyond Personality: First Steps in the Doctrine of the Trinity, mm-hmm. and and he he's going to make an argument for the Trinity. I'll give you the argument he makes, and it's it's profound. Yeah, but before I do that. Um, why is this, how does this have something to do with personality? Right. Personhood isn't understood in isolation. As a matter of fact, it was Owen Barfield, C.S. Lewis's good friend. In his book, Barfield wrote a book on C.S. Lewis. And in that book, he writes this, the experience of oneself over against that which is not oneself is a sine qua non of human consciousness. Sine qua non means hmm. Which without which there is nothing. So the experience right. of oneself over against that which is not oneself is is, is vital to human consciousness. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I'm only really self-referential. Yes. I'm isolated. I'm not really concerned what other people think. And I am going to atrophy as a human being. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that so? Because I'm made in the image of a of a God who exists in community, Father, Son, yeah. and Holy Spirit. Yeah. And if I'm not learning. Um, what it is to be a person in community, then I am also atrophying and <laughs> and isolating myself. So so in some senses, there's, there's this, uh, this passage, Lewis writes about it in other places, but in Revelation, there's a passage in, in Revelation chapter 2, at the end of the letter to the church at Pergamum, where it says, when we get to heaven, God's going to hand us a white stone. And it's a white stone that has a new name on it. So the word name, often in Scripture, carries with it the concept of identity. Mm -hmm. In heaven, God's going to give us a new name, and it's going to have our identity wrapped up in it. And it says it's new and known to the one that receives it. How could it be new and known? Because all of our life, we're getting down payments on our true identity. Mm -hmm. And that true identity is is not a copy-cutter identity where I'm supposed to be like, Parker, or Parker's supposed to be like Jerry, or both of us are supposed to be like C.S. Lewis. All of us are described to be like Jesus, but like Jesus in the unique expression of Him that calls itself Parker, set a case, or calls yeah. itself Jerry Root, or whatever. And so, consequently, God gives us the identity. We find it in Him. Mm-hmm. We find it in Him, and it's natural that we would because He's a God of Trinity. So, um, the, the words, God is love, Lewis writes, have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: If God was a single person, he writes in mere Christianity, then before the world was made, he was not love. Yeah. And elsewhere, Lewis wrote, in God, all the concrete reciprocities of love existed from time immemorial." And And his, his friend, Charles Williams, wrote this of the Aryans and the Muslims. They denied love to God except by means of his creation. What do they mean by that? Yeah. If I if I ask a non-Trinitarian monotheist, somebody who's a, a Muslim or a Jew or a Jehovah's Witness or something like that, these people have a a devotion to God. They want to follow God and so on. But out of that devotion, if they've fallen into this particular theological construct, where they only say there 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 is is one God eternally existent in one one essence and one person or whatever. If I say to them, do you believe God's a contingent being or a non-contingent being? They're likely to say, what do you mean by contingent or non-contingent? And I tell them, is there is there a, a source of origin for God? Like you're contingent upon the fact that your parents uh, uh, cohabited and you were conceived and you were there. And then their parents were there before them and their parents before them at, at, at in memoriam. There's a contingency that has led to each of you being there. You take dominoes and set them up at the coffee table and mm-hmm. find them around. Something outside the dominoes had to set them up. And you push the first one over, and then it starts this chain reaction.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Is God just part of a chain reaction? Or is God non contingent, self existent, independent, always been? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've had hundreds of conversations with with non-trinitarian monotheists and all of them say oh no 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 we believe god's non-contingent right Mm self-existent eternal and then i say to them is god a god of love and to my surprise they all say yeah i've had this conversation with over 200 muslims they all say oh yeah i believe he's a god of love and then i say to them third question who's the object of his love Mm -hmm. and they're reduced to saying creation is or the people he created are and i say to them if god needed us to fulfill his nature of love, then you've got a contradiction in your theology. God is a contingent being and not a non-contingent being because he cannot have love apart from his creation. Yeah, This is what Lewis had said.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So the idea is relational attributes like love in a non-contingent being presuppose that love must be necessary in that being. Mm -hmm. The relationship must be necessary in that being. And so the Christian view is that there's one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not illogical. It'd be illogical if I said one God, three gods, or if I said one person, three persons. Right. But I'm not using the words contradictory. Mm-hmm. It may be difficult to wrap our minds around. Uh, right. There can be things that could be supranatural about the faith, but they cannot be irrational about the faith. You can't yeah. have contradiction in, yeah. in, 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 if God's a God of truth. So, the practicality of it, then, is that if our relationships are broken with God, if our relationships with one another are broken, and if our relationship, even within ourselves, we have struggle between uh, the the soul and the flesh. Flesh isn't bad. God made it. Jesus came in it. We'll be raised with it. The flesh becomes problematic, Paul says in Galatians 5, when it sets its desire against the spirit. Mm-hmm. So now I'm divided in myself. The strength, yeah. sin is Stranging, and and the gospel is reconciling this God who exists in Trinity in an eternal love relationship wants to bring that kind of of uh, he wants to condescend in the mm-hmm. best sense of the word yeah and he wants to unite and reconcile us to himself us to one another and even us to to ourselves yeah. so there's something holistic about it and the practicality of it is that it's it's an objective standard for the mending of a broken world yeah. And, and um, I find my personhood and my purpose for living as I involve myself properly in that missional process of presenting the gospel to other people, bringing them to Christ, letting them know there's hope in Christ, letting them know there's a discovery of their own identity in Christ and so on. And and it's it's a standard for wholeness and service. It's interesting too because Christians have a view of creation, and there are a lot of different views among Christians. Some are theistic evolutionists, some are uh, young earth creationists, some are whatever. But but the deal is they all believe this. Yeah. All Christians, if we're going to stick to mere Christianity, is that God created. Creation always implies intention. Mm-hmm. If a potter throws the clay on the wheel. She knows what she wants to do with that clay when she throws it on the wheel. She wants to make a pot or a vase or whatever. Dante put it another way. Dante said, function precedes essence. Mm -hmm. Purpose Purpose for us preceded the essence God gave us when he made us. And Dante talks about the fact, basically, that God made uh, light, the purpose, before he made the luminary, sun, moon, and stars. That was on day four of creation, light's on day one. Yeah. Before God ever made us with the essence He made us with, He had a purpose for us, and it was to serve in His wider plan. Mm-hmm. And personality, personhood is found in proper relationship with God, proper relationship and virtuous, just relationship with one another, exhibited also wisely, temperately, and courageously, and so on. And, and when Lewis writes about this stuff, it's like a breath of fresh air, Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's fits together like the pieces of a puzzle and the picture that emerges is something where we say yeah that's what i want in my life yeah that that kind of togetherness that kind of wholeness that kind of integration and so on it's 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 overwhelming yeah anyway that's 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 basically what book four is about
1: yeah well and just like you said jerry this is why i wanted to get this out there because You can see it as not a a cobbled together set of uh, short lecture notes, but as a unified system of Christian theology, philosophy, and apologetics, that he's going with the eminently uh, practical everyday life. You know when you bump into someone that you've wronged them, if you've done it on purpose or if you have wronged someone, okay, but what are you going to do with that? Well, Christ came down, in uh, the second person of the Trinity came down in the person of Jesus Christ, to pay for your sins, so that he can make a way back to himself. Well, how do I live now that I have the gospel? Well, here's how you live in a virtuous. Here's how you're supposed to uh, interact with other image bearers. And why? Because the God who made you is a tripersonal uh,
2: God of love, and it and it all comes together. And He didn't make us just for ourselves. Mm-hmm. He made us to participate again, yeah. Him and with others. So Jesus is asked, "What's the great commandment?" What's the most important thing I can do with my life? And he says, love God and love your neighbor. Mm. And if I have trouble loving my neighbor, then I need to go back and lather up in understanding what it means that I am loved by God. Yeah. And go on that rich reservoir so I'll have plenty to give out to others. None of us are to live for ourselves. We're called to live ultimately for God and for others. And when we do live for God and for others, we really begin to discover ourselves.
1: Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, Jerry, thanks so much for, for talking about this. We we have another uh we have another conversation where we talked about the neglected C.S. Lewis uh from, from your uh, recent book with Mark Neal. And uh so today we covered the most uh covered, most read uh C.S. Lewis. So if you guys are interested in hearing more about Lewis's other works, uh I will put the uh link to that other uh conversation in uh in the bio here. So check that out in the description. Um, Jerry, thanks so much for, for putting this all together for us. And it, it's always awesome. I always learn something new every time we talk.
2: I'm happy to do it, Parker, and I'm grateful to be in association with you any way I can. You're one of the best <laughs> young men I know, and, and I am grateful to God for the way he wired you. I'm grateful that he, he engineered our lives so that they would mm-hmm. intersect. And I will tell my great-grandkids what she went on to do. that's
1: awesome thanks jerry you've been a a huge blessing to me and my family and i can't wait to tell my grandkids about you as well uh this has been uh parker's pensies lord willing we can talk about this some more but for now it's gonna have to do it as always all glory to god